Well, thanks to sites like Facebook and Instagram, even if you don't have those, maybe you know a little bit about them, and every one of us who does now has the ability to legally stalk people that we grew up with, right? People from our childhood uh, that we haven't even seen for years, but we have the ability to go back and, and look at what they're doing and where they're at now and choices they've made. And so people I haven't even talked to in 20, 25, 30 years, I can see what's going on in their life through sites like this. And you get a glimpse into where they're at, what they're up to, the decisions they've made, at least what they've decided to post about that. And for many of them, their lives look very different than I would have guessed. Some positive ways and some in negative ways. You see those things, and there are some I thought would be proclaiming the gospel for the rest of their lives, and now they're spending their life in opposition to the gospel. And then there are some I thought would never even be open to hearing the gospel, and now that's all they talk about. That's all they post about. Maybe you are one of those people for someone else, right? If they saw what you're doing now, if they see what you're posting on Facebook, they would be blown away by you being one of those people. Well, thankfully, God does not operate from our perspective. Thankfully, what may seem unlikely to us can happen in an instant through the work of Jesus. And we get another example of that in our text today in Luke chapter 7. In Luke 7, directly after his teaching on the plain, Jesus shows off the truth he has just been teaching about through some unlikely people. A Gentile soldier, which we'll talk about this morning, a widow, a unique prophet, and then a prostitute, all in chapter 7. In the verses we'll be reading this morning, we see an unlikely faith in the life of a Roman Gentile soldier. So let's go ahead and read from God's word in Luke chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 to 10. This is the word of the Lord. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Our five points that we'll walk through this morning basically just walk us right through the text. 
They're going to highlight the main sections of these 10 verses. And so you have first in verse 1, the transition. In verse 2, the background. In verses 3 to 5, the request. In verses 6 to 8, the faith of the centurion. And then in verses 9 to 10, the response of the Savior. So first of all, in verse 1, we just simply see this transition statement. And just a brief word about the transition Jesus has just delivered what would become the most famous sermon in history. And so now Luke informs the reader that Jesus, after he concluded, moves back to Capernaum. So he goes back to this town in Galilee that's really kind of become the home base for much of his ministry here. And so this sentence is really just serving as a transition from the sermon to the centurion and the servant. Next in verse 2, we get the background. And every point will not be that short, so don't start packing up just yet. But verse 2, we see the background of the text, or the setup to what's about to take place. Verse 2 begins by giving us a few details about the situation that Jesus is walking into in Capernaum. Luke writes that there's a centurion and he has a servant that is very ill. A centurion was a Gentile, a powerful soldier within the Roman army. Uh, likely would have been in charge of at least 100 men. So he had authority from an earthly sense. And these guys were not often respected by the Jews. These were the ones to oppress the Jews to make sure they stayed in line. So they were not necessarily friends with the Jewish people. This is not your typical friendly police officer that you would see in, in Centerville. Yet we find out right away that this centurion was different. First of all, he loved and cared for his servant. He valued his servant. His servant wasn't just a means to an end. He was someone he cared for deeply. He was willing to go to great lengths to care for and try to help this servant get better. This servant, the text tells us, was so ill that he was even about to die. So that's kind of the setup to what we're walking into, what Jesus is walking into. So what will happen kind of leaves us hanging at the end of that sentence to now what will happen in the rest of this story. Most of us know what will happen because we've read this before or we know Jesus or we know how these stories work, but imagine you're reading this for the first time. You hear Jesus teaching, now you get this set up to a servant who's ill, about to die, you have no idea what's about to happen. So approach this with fresh eyes, eager to hear, to see what's about to happen. What happens with this servant? And that leads us to our third section, which is the request, verses 3 to 5. Verse 3 tells us that he heard about Jesus. The word is spreading about Jesus. Imagine the reports coming back to Capernaum about his teaching, about the words he's teaching, about the authority with which he teaches them, about the fact that he's healed a, a withered hand, he's cast out demons, He's healing a paralytic. I mean, all of this is getting back to this man. Demons leaving people and then declaring him the son of God. And not to mention John the Baptist who's been leading the way, proclaiming the salvation that's to come. So all of these things, the Roman centurion's hearing and then God is beginning to use what he's hearing to grow a faith in him. A faith that is about to be shown off in our story here. This was a faith that rested not on some irrational hope or 
some pie-in-the-sky dream. This was a faith that was based on truth that he was hearing about Jesus, on facts about Jesus that are now spreading throughout Galilee. And then the text tells us that when he heard about Jesus, he knew he had to do something. He, he goes out to Jesus. He sends someone out to Jesus because hearing about the hope found in Jesus and the power of Jesus makes him want to go to Jesus, to, to seek help, to take action. Most believe that this Gentile soldier, knowing that Jesus was a Jew, knew that he, it would probably be best to send other Jewish people out to him because he's a Roman soldier. So he got Jewish leaders to intercede on his behalf, to go out to Jesus. And again, this is where it seems as if this story is trying to teach us a little bit about the centurion, that there's a, a love he has for the nation, he, a love he has for the Israelites and the nation there and the, the people. He even builds a synagogue. And so the Jewish people are then pleading on, on the behalf of a Roman soldier. So all of this is just unique to the circumstances of the day. This would not be normal. It's a bit like what we'll even see later with Cornelius, who is also a centurion in Acts chapter 10, also written by Luke, as Luke is highlighting another Gentile centurion who fears God, who empathizes with the Jewish people. This was not a common thing because we see a couple examples of centurions doing this. It's not common. It's showing us. It's setting apart examples of those who have hope in Jesus, even as Gentiles, even as centurions. So it would have been rare for Jews to plead the case of a Gentile sinner, especially a Roman soldier. But clearly he has a different relationship with the Jewish people. Even going as far as having a synagogue built for them, which I actually just want to show you a picture of the synagogue because the foundation of the synagogue can still be seen in Capernaum if you went to visit thousands of years later. So the white limestone is, is probably 4th or 5th century, they think, but the dark foundation is 1st century foundation. So the foundation you see is actually the foundation that the centurion helped to build that we read about in our account in Luke 7. So the generosity of the centurion is still being seen by travelers to Capernaum. And it's in light of all of these things that the elders of the Jews ask Jesus to come heal his servant, pointing to some of these things, the, the building, the, the love for the nation, kind of outside credibility, things that you see, external things which we will see countered here in a minute by the centurion as we read. And all of this leads to us seeing in verses 6 to 8 the faith of the centurion. Jesus, after hearing from the Jewish leaders, he decides to go with them. And when he isn't too far from the house, it, it seems as if something isn't sitting right with the centurion because he he gathers his friends and he sends them out to meet Jesus before he can get to the house. Right? It's like if you're having company come over and your house is a mess and you send someone out to stall them as you're finishing up cleaning. It's kind of he sends them out to stop Jesus with a message for him. 
And I want to read that one more time, what the centurion has these friends say on behalf of him. In verse 6, if you want to look there again. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion is starting to figure out what even the disciples haven't quite figured out yet. The way he's communicating to Jesus, the way he sends his friends out to Jesus, the way he calls him Lord, showing that he knew he was not worthy before him. Showing that he knew the words of Jesus had divine power. There was authority in this Jesus not even worthy to have him in his own home. And remember, this account comes directly after Jesus has been talking about how pointless it is to call him Lord, which the centurion just did, and then live as if he's not actually Lord. And the first example we get right after that is someone calling him Lord and living as if he is Lord as if he believes what Jesus has said about himself and what he has done. He follows up this title of Lord with words and actions that show he actually believes what Jesus says. He actually believes who Jesus is. The Jewish leaders had said he is worthy in verse 4, yet the centurion says about himself, I am not worthy. A deliberate contrast there between how others talk about him and how he thinks and talks about himself. I think we see this often, kind of this sense of being unworthy in the presence of Jesus. We see this in John the Baptist just a few chapters back. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, He who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. We see it again in Peter back in Luke 5, just two chapters earlier. Peter fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We also see it displayed in the life of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So this is an incredible commendation by the Jewish leaders to Jesus. Externally, they saw him as worthy. His reputation was flawless. But from his own perspective, he could not be more unworthy. I think this is such a helpful picture of what the life of those with genuine faith should look like. Our life should demonstrate our obedience to our Lord, faithfulness to our Lord, But our disposition is one of complete unworthiness and dependence. May others point to the ways in which we walk in faithfulness. But we understand how unworthy we truly are. Lord, I know they said I was worthy of your attention because of some of these things I've done. But they don't know me like you do. 
They don't know me like I even know myself at times. Are we worthy? Not in our own estimation. But may others see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. This is what some have described as a holy humility. John Owen wrote, There are two things that are suited to humble the souls of men. A due consideration of God and then of ourselves. Of God and his greatness, glory, holiness, power, majesty, and authority. Of ourselves in our mean, abject, and sinful condition. So know God and know yourself accurately. And the word equips us in that work. But even here in in Luke 7, the centurion is beginning to understand this as he sees Jesus and he sees himself in light of Jesus. The centurion pleads, just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. So as he sees his unworthiness and he sees the authority and the power of Jesus, he, he knows at least in part that to call Jesus Lord means that he has the authority to do things with even words. That type of authority. If he would simply say the word, it would be done. And this is such a significant statement from the Roman soldier. And it reflects the faith that Jesus talks about in in the last section. In most people's minds, miracles back then were only possible through direct contact. You had to touch what you were going to, to heal. Not, however, with Yahweh. Psalm 107, verses 19 to 20, says this about him. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So only God can heal like that. Only God has that type of power. Only God can create everything out of nothing with a word. Only God. And the centurion trusts that Jesus can heal from a distance. Jesus can do that with a word. This is the faith that marvels even Jesus, as we'll see in our final section. Again, what an incredible statement of faith from this Roman soldier. And he goes on to further illustrate that from his own life, explaining what he's talking about, his words in verse 8. As he talks about the fact that he is set under authority, he has authority, and so when he tells someone to do something, they do it. They're under his command. This is not a humble brag to Jesus about his rank. It's not reminding Jesus of the power he has as a, a human over other people. He's emphasizing to Jesus that he understands authority because he is under authority and he also has authority. So just as a soldier would completely follow the commands of this centurion, Jesus too, with a word, can command the disease to leave as if it was never there. He will command the waves to stop and they drop to nothing. He commands the withered hand to be restored and it's made new immediately. He tells a demon to go into a pig and run off a cliff 
And it does it as if it has no other choice. Jesus, with the words, Lazarus, come forth, brings life from death in an instant. And he continues to use his words today to call people from darkness to light. That's the type of authority that Jesus has, and that's the type of authority that the centurion begins to recognize. He has that type of power. No wonder he sent friends out to stop him before he got to his home. No wonder he didn't feel worthy. Yet, even as he sees the truth about Jesus, even as he recognizes how unworthy he is, there's also a recognition that he does not need to be worthy to seek the help of Jesus. And that's actually the point. The healthy have no need of a physician, only the sick, Luke 5, 31. Jesus doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who realize they cannot help themselves. That's what Jesus is driving at here. That's what he's showing those who are watching, those who would read. And not many texts remind us of this better than Ephesians chapter 2. So I want to read all of chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Doesn't sound like someone that can help themselves. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The faith we see in the centurion was not a faith he contrived on his own. It was not a faith that he woke up one morning and decided he was just going to have this faith. Faith is not natural to us. We don't arrive on the scene as babies ready to worship. We don't show up in humility ready to submit to his rule. Faith is only ever a gift of grace. You and I have all the power in the world to doubt, all the power in the world to run in the opposite direction, to run towards unbelief, to deconstruct our faith, to look to self, and no power at all on our own to believe. So if you believe, don't pat yourself on the back. Bow your head in thankfulness. That God has given you the gift of faith. 
What once was dead is now alive by grace and grace alone. That is why we gather to sing together. That is why we gather around the one who has communicated to us, around his word. And there's so much misunderstanding about the idea of faith. In the average conversation in our culture, it's a, you know, the sun will come out tomorrow type of attitude. It's a hope, if we want to call it that, that if things get difficult, the universe will be friendly. Things will get better. You just got to have faith. The song comes to your mind. You're dating yourself there. Or believing that what you want to happen will happen if you just have faith. As long as you believe it will happen, it will happen. That's kind of the cultural idea. It even makes its way into churches, into Christian thinking about faith. But biblical faith, the faith we see in this centurion is something different. It's informed by God. For us, it's informed by the scriptures. For them, even, it was informed by the scriptures. And its source, its foundation is God himself through the work of Christ. Biblical faith takes God at his word. It's willing to do what God says and stay within the boundaries that he has set up. It completely transforms the way you live your life. Faith transforms. We don't just think by faith, we live by faith. And this faith comes even to a Gentile. An unworthy oppressor of God's people receives a faith that causes even Jesus to marvel. Which we find in our final section, uh, verses 9 and 10, the response of the Savior. Normally, what we see in the gospel accounts are people are marveling at Jesus. They're amazed at Jesus. And what we see here is Jesus is marveling at the faith of the centurion. And there are only two times in the gospel accounts where Jesus marvels at other people. In our account this morning of the centurion, and then in Mark chapter 6, he marvels when he's in Nazareth because of their unbelief. So there's a good marveling and, and, and a not so good marveling of Jesus. Those are the only two examples we get. So this is a really important statement recorded by Luke. It amazed Jesus that a Gentile soldier who would be a stranger to the covenant, who likely didn't even know the scriptures well, limited understanding at best, saw what even few of the covenant people of Israel saw when they looked at Jesus, the Son of God. He saw his place before Jesus. He saw the authority of Jesus. He saw the power of Jesus. And this faith showed itself off in his trust. We see faithfulness to Jesus already in this centurion. Faith in Jesus produces a faithfulness to Jesus. And this marveling is not like a, whoa, I didn't see that coming type of marveling. But an amazement. And we, we see that even though this word may not be used, we see this in Jesus throughout the gospel accounts that there's an amazement as those who are not expected to believe from earthly categories believe. And then on the other side, there's amazement that those who would be expected to believe from earthly perspectives don't believe. 
And based on some other details we get in Matthew, Jesus marveled that in this centurion, he saw a, a foreshadow, a, a sort of first fruit for what he was coming to accomplish. In Matthew 8, which is the parallel account of what we're reading here, he records Jesus saying that many would come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this idea that Jesus is talking about, part of what I think makes him marvel is that this is pointing to the hopes and promises of God beyond the Israelite people, beyond the likely those you would assume would believe and trust. The miracle of this account is not simply that Jesus healed from a distance, but he's bridged an even greater cultural gap by bringing salvation, by bringing faith to a Gentile soldier. This man whose faith made Jesus marvel, he was not a disciple. He did no miracles. He didn't plant a church. He didn't have a degree he had no pastoral title. The man with the greatest faith in Israel was a centurion who simply knew who Jesus was, trusted and believed and humbly asked him for help. He really believed in Jesus. And Jesus said, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Not even among those who you would expect to be the faithful have I found such faith. Maybe you noticed as we read through this, but the miracle really becomes sort of an afterthought. As you're, the more you read this, you, you kind of start to forget even about the servant <laughs> being sick and needing healing. What you start out thinking will be the main point, you know, I can't wait to, to see what happens to the servant. If you're just reading through this for the first time, you want to know. It kind of becomes an afterthought, a background noise, a, a footnote. Faith, once again, is a greater miracle than even physical healing with a word from a distance. That's how much of a miracle the faith you have received is. Even greater than if I could speak into existence someone who's about to die being healthy. Greater than that. Luke is not concerned with simply telling us about another miraculous healing, although he gives us, he, he doesn't leave us hanging, at least, right, verse 10. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. That's it. That's all we get. All this build up, and that's all we get about the miracle. The whole rest of the account is spent, focused on the supreme miracle. That this centurion would come to Christ, recognizing who he is and approaching him in humility. Having this faith. Which is a bit, really, of, of a real-life example of what Jesus spent the entire sermon talking about. Even if you weren't here for those sermons, I, I encourage you to go back and listen or go back and read chapter 6. Because the person Jesus describes in that sermon even takes the form of a Gentile Roman centurion. He is among the blessed. It's no accident that this account is played right after that sermon. No accident that Jesus goes back to Capernaum and interacts with this man right after a sermon about topics like the unlikely being among the blessed. 
loving your enemies, calling him Lord and actually trusting him as Lord. The unlikely centurion is among the blessed. This is truly an unlikely faith. One implication for us is to not assume to know who God will give faith. Who God will work in and through, even today. Who is the centurion in your life? Maybe it's you. Maybe you are the centurion this morning. Maybe it's a family member or a neighbor that you have prayed for for years. Maybe it's someone that is so opposed to the gospel, you don't even take effort to talk about it. How does this message that faith can come even to a Gentile Roman soldier spur you on in your gospel proclamation? Jesus is beginning to show us here in Luke 7 that faith is for all types of people. Not just those that fit in our class and race and political party and denomination and zip code. Not just for those that seem open to reason or like your posts about church on Facebook. Or even seem like friendly neighbors. Not just for those people. So continue to pray and speak and love and serve and share as you see God do what from a human perspective seems impossible and unlikely. This is the type of faith that causes even Jesus to marvel. The faith of a Gentile. I mentioned at the beginning of this final point the idea of Jesus marveling twice in the gospel accounts. At the unlikely faith of this centurion and at the unbelief of those in his own hometown. The least likely believe, the most likely disbelieve. And I want to circle back to that thought as we close by considering which way we would cause Jesus to marvel. Based on the two examples we see of Jesus marveling in the New Testament, Kevin DeYoung writes this. I think when Jesus sees his people trusting in the midst of extreme suffering, he marvels. When he sees people from the roughest backgrounds come to him with brokenhearted humility, he marvels. When he sees you give up comfort and security for the sake of his kingdom, he marvels. But on the other hand, I fear he may marvel at us for the wrong reason sometimes. If I were a teenager or 20-something, I'd hate for Jesus to look at me and think, here's a kid with loving parents, Bible reading at the dinner table, prayers from his whole family, faithful teaching at church, a comfortable home with lots of opportunities and encouragement, and yet this young person wants nothing to do with me. Amazing. That's not the amazement you want from Jesus. I think Jesus marvels at some of us who sit under the preaching of the word and enjoy the fellowship of the saints and know all the Bible stories and still there's no zeal for Christ, no desire to grow in him, no effort to put him first. Nazareth is a warning to us. Familiarity can breed spectacular unbelief. The centurion is a ray of hope. Even the unlikeliest among us sometimes believe. In both cases, Jesus marvels. I'm sure Jesus stands amazed as he looks at the church in North America. I wonder what makes him marvel most. I 
think this account can be both a warning and an encouragement to all of us. May our faith grow as we look to and trust in the object of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look to him and as we trust in him, may we walk in obedience, showing off that we actually believe that he is Lord. That's our calling together today. Ultimately, that he may marvel at the faith of his people, a faith that he's given us and then called us to walk in obedience because of. Let's pray.